Amen. Good morning, Evergreen SGV Church family. You know, every time I would come up here, I would always take comfort as I look out in the sanctuary and see all your faces. And I would say, what a privilege it is to gather as God's people, knowing that there are brothers and sisters all throughout the world who are not able to gather to worship. And I would say that because I would remember when I was traveling around the world in those very places. And I would always look forward to coming back here and being with all of you. So too, I look forward to the day when we will be together again and we will worship together. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we have this time this holy moment where we can gather together to seek you, to worship you. And God, even though we're at home, I know that our hearts are racing. There's thoughts going on in our minds. And so I pray now that you would quiet our hearts, that you would quiet our souls, that you would remove all distractions, and that we could sit at your feet right now, Jesus, as we hear from you in your word. And so, God, I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as Pastor Kenny mentioned, we have just completed week three of the stay-at-home, safe-at-home order. We're about to begin week four. And maybe some of you right now, you know, at the beginning of that order, we were trying to make the best of it, right? We were trying to find the positives, right? We're all together. We're at home. All the outside activities, they're all taken away. We could focus on what really matters. We could enjoy family worship. We could enjoy walks in the neighborhood, bike rides in the neighborhood. We try to find the positives. But if you're anything like me, I think it was about at day two when I said, okay, I've had enough. I want to just skip over to the end of it. Can we just get this over with? God, I, I learned my lesson. Okay, I'm too busy. Yes, I know. Please, can we just skip and get to the end of this? And isn't that how we are in most things? We try to skip through traffic, what, by taking those side streets in unknown neighborhoods. We try to skip to the end of that story. Why? Because we don't like the middle. We fast forward through the first three quarters of that game. Why? Because first three quarters is kind of boring. And so, too, it is with this week, this week known as the Holy Week, this week known as Passion Week. We want to skip from Palm Sunday all the way to Easter Sunday. We want to skip over all the gory details. We want to skip past the pain, past the suffering, past the cross, past the grave. We just want to go to the resurrection. We want to skip over Good Friday and get to Easter Sunday. We want to skip past the death. We want to go to the resurrection. 
but we will never fully glory in Easter. We will never fully rejoice in the resurrection until we have entered into the suffering and the death of Christ. You see, this Holy Week is an annual invitation to join Jesus in his descent down, down, down. So that we could suffer and die with him. That we might go up and rejoice with him in his resurrection on Easter Sunday. You see, Easter starts with a J. This week is a is a descent downward with Jesus. And we are all invited to join with him. This morning, I'm going to give an overview of this Holy Week. I'm going to go day by day, from Sunday, this Palm Sunday, all the way through Easter Sunday. And we're going to see how this follows the trajectory, the shape of a J. And I was largely inspired by the teaching in the book J-Curve by Paul Miller. And we will see how each day Jesus takes a descent downward. Now children, the key word for this sermon is down. And after every point, I want you to draw an arrow, you know, the direction that Jesus is going and so let's all join Jesus as he takes this downward trajectory and descends down, down, down. And one thing to note in the midst of all of this, okay, this is really important, this is really key. Jesus was in control the entire time. He knew what he was doing. He chose this. He was heading down. And let's, so let's start with this day, Palm Sunday, Sunday. Jesus sets out as Messiah to die. Jesus sets out as Messiah, the Christ, to die. This is Palm Sunday. So if you have your Bibles, but it'll be in your sermon notes, you can turn to Luke chapter 19, and I'll be reading out of the ESV, Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 28. And it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so they were sent away and found it just as they had told them. Verse 33, right, this is listed right here. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so I read a little bit more before. But that just shows this whole passage. You know what it shows? It shows that Jesus was in control. Jesus gave specific instructions to his disciples where to find the colt, what to say, how to get it. And on, in verse 35, the disciples, they set Jesus on that colt. They set their cloaks on the path. In other Gospels, it says that the crowds would lay down palm leaves. Why palm leaves? That's the national symbol for Israel. And they would shout cries of Hosanna, meaning salvation is here, meaning the Messiah has come to reign. And the disciples here in verse 38, they're quoting from Psalm 118. They're declaring, blessed is a king, blessed is the Messiah king to come and reign. And note that when the disciples do this, when the crowd shout this, when the disciples declare this, Jesus doesn't stop them. Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem as a king. He's coming in as the Messiah king, and Jesus doesn't stop this. And you might be thinking, hey, I always thought that Palm Sunday, Jesus was trending up. Right? If it was happening today, there'd be a lot of likes. There'd be a lot of those hearts being clicked right now. Right? Wasn't Palm Sunday Jesus trending up? But no, Palm Sunday, Jesus was already heading down. Why is that? Well, because Jesus knew that to come in as a king into Roman-occupied Palestine where Caesar is king was punishable by death. Furthermore, to come in as Messiah and to come into Jerusalem and declare yourself as Messiah King and not overthrow the Romans and not establish Israel as the center ruling nation of the entire world, well, those cries of Hosanna could very well turn into cries of crucify him. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing. Even the, the, even the Pharisees, right, in verse 39, they're alarmed. They're saying, what are you doing? You're coming in as king. You're coming in as Messiah. Rebuke your disciples. What does Jesus say? Verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, even the stones will cry out. Even the stones know who I am. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was setting out as Messiah to his death. And he was in control the entire time. He had every detail planned out. He was heading down. He chose this. Let's move on to Monday. Monday. Jesus shakes up the religious order. Jesus shakes up, disrupts, the religious order, and he does it at the religious and political center of Israel, the temple. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 15. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were sowed, who sowed and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sowed pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Here, Jesus goes straight to the temple, again, the religious and political center of Israel. And this is known as cleansing the temple. The Messiah was expected to cleanse and purify temple worship. This was what Jesus was doing. Now note here, I want us to understand here, verse 15, Jesus drives out not just those who sold, but note here, also those who bought in the temple. We look at this passage and we think, oh yeah, Jesus was overturning tables because the money changers were cheating the people. But note here, he wasn't just driving out the sellers, he was driving out the buyers too. Furthermore, he said in verse 16, he would not allow anybody to come through. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was making a statement. He was basically getting up and saying, can I have your attention, please? He was stopping everything from happening. He was making a statement. And he was saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Right? That's, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He's saying that my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples. That's rich and poor. That's Jew and non-Jew. That's significant and not significant. Everybody should be able to seek God in this place. But what had it become? But you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7, verse 11. What does that mean? Jesus was saying, if you look at Jeremiah 7, verse 11, it's very interesting. After this, go look it up. But what Jesus is saying is, you made this an exclusive hangout for sinners. It's not just, we're not just talking about people who steal, but people who are living unrighteous lives. Jesus is saying, you have made this an exclusive hangout, a hideout for people who look good on the outside but are rotten on the inside. And you're just hiding behind this temple. You're forbidding other people to come in. You're setting all these standards, and you yourself are not living pure lives. This is what Jesus was doing. And note that the following day, the temple probably went back to normal. The hustle and bustle, everything going on. Because Jesus was trying to make a statement here. He was trying to declare an indictment against what the temple had become. And note verse 18 the chief priests and the scribes, the ruling party of the temple, they heard it and they wanted to destroy Jesus. Jesus knew what he was doing. 
Hey, he came in, he walked the walk. Next day, he talked the talk too, right? He is acting like the Messiah. He declares himself as Messiah. And the chief priests, they want none of it. Note that if you come in as the Messiah, you are setting yourself above all the religious leaders of that day, and they didn't want that. And so they sought to destroy him. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was heading down, down to his death. He chose this. And so we move on to Tuesday. Tuesday, Jesus challenges the religious authority. Jesus challenges the religious leaders. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 23. And when he entered the temple, this on Tuesday, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Verse 27, So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the religious leaders, the authority, they try to trap Jesus. They try to challenge him based on theological debates. But Jesus, he turns it right back at them and questions their authority and the ground on which they stand. You see right here, we have the chief priests, the elders, they come up to him in the temple. These are the ruling party of the temple. Jesus comes in as Messiah. He cries out against the temple. Again, the religious center of Israel. And these leaders are saying, what authority are you doing these things? And note Jesus' response. He answers them with a question. And he stumps them. He says, what about John the Baptist? Where did he get his authority? And there he traps them because out of their hatred for John the Baptist, because they were threatened by him, they refused to acknowledge that he was from God. And so too, out of their fear of men, they refused to acknowledge that John the Baptist was just another man. And as they were doing this, as they were going through this, Jesus is saying, so too it is with me. Right? Even though these chief priests could not answer Jesus and Jesus would not answer them, it's clear to all of us, Jesus' authority came from God the Father. Right? Later on, the Pharisees would try to trap Jesus, asking him about taxes paid to Caesar. You see, the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to declare his intentions to undermine Roman rule. Because Caesar was king, they were trying to have Jesus undermine that. What does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God 
what is God's. He stumps them. The Sadducees, another religious group, influential group, they come up to him. They don't believe in the resurrection. And they come up with this ridiculous, elaborate situation to try to trap Jesus, asking about, is there marriage in the resurrection? And Jesus responds from Scripture, pointing out to their forefathers that they take pride in, saying, doesn't God say that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Well, they've all died. How can that be so? And he stumps them. Later on in chapter 22, the end of chapter 22, verse 41, Jesus turns right back at them to a group of Pharisees and says, hey, who do you say that the Messiah is? And they say, the son of David. And then Jesus says, well, how come in Psalm 110, David, the author of that psalm, refers to the Messiah as my Lord? Jesus was basically saying, how come you can't accept me as the Messiah? And so he stumps them. And it's interesting in Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, it says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They tried trapping Jesus to no avail. He turned it right back at them. But note that did this cause the religious leaders to follow Jesus after he refutes them? No. Their anger, their hatred for him only grows. Right? If Jesus is going down, the religious leaders, their hatred of him goes up. And they want to kill him. They want to destroy him. Does Jesus know what he is doing? Yes. He's in control. He chose this path and he goes further down. And so we come to Wednesday. Wednesday. Jesus continues to teach in the face of danger. Jesus continues to teach amidst death threats. Let's turn to Luke chapter 21. Beginning with verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. There's not much written about Wednesday. It's known as Silent Wednesday. But we know here from Luke chapter 21 that Jesus continued to teach in the temple. And we know in chapter 22, that the chief priests and the scribes continue to seek a way to kill him. And it's interesting that Jesus would continue to teach knowing full well that people are out to get him. But Jesus was in control. Did Jesus know that by boldly teaching in the temple, he was putting himself at risk? Yes. Was Jesus further establishing his messianic authority by doing this? Yes. Was Jesus forcing the hand of the religious leaders to kill him because out of their pride they would never 
acknowledge him as Messiah? Yes. Did Jesus know what he was doing? Most definitely. Jesus chose this. He came to die and to die as a ransom for many. And so Jesus goes further down. And let's move to Thursday. Thursday. Jesus meets his betrayal with love. Jesus meets his betrayal face to face and chooses to still love. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Sorry, Matthew chapter 26. Beginning with verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as is it written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus here chooses on his final night with his friends to celebrate the Passover. Now, remember the Passover was when the people of Israel celebrated when, while in Egypt as slaves, they marked the outside of their homes with the blood of a lamb so that the Lord would pass over their homes and yet bring judgment and death to every firstborn in Egypt of every home that was not marked by the blood of the lamb. And this was because Pharaoh would not let God's people go. And so Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. In verse 21, Jesus drops the bomb, right? Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Cue now the record scratch. Awkward silence. Disciples scrambling. Is it I? Is it I? Ah! And Jesus says, right? He says, one of you will betray me. Verse 23, he who dipped his hands in the dish with me will betray me. What Jesus is saying is that it's one of you. It's one of my friends in this very intimate, very solemn Passover meal. One of you will betray me. Judas, everybody's asking, is it I, is it I? I guess Judas uh, succumbed to peer pressure and says, hey, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus responds very cryptically. He says, you have said so. And Jesus knew. Jesus knew. Right? And yet, he still chose to love. 
And my question, if it was me, why even invite Judas to the party? Right? Jesus sat Judas right next to him in a seat of honor. He chose to love him, to honor him. If it were up to me, I'd put, Jesus in that cor- uh, I'd put Judas in that corner over there, have him face the wall, and shame him by saying, now you think about what you are going to do, young man. But that's not so with Jesus. He, choose, he chooses to love. Right? This Last Supper is an intimate, precious moment And he has his betrayer right there. And Jesus knew what he was doing, right? In verse 26, Jesus institutes what we know as the Lord's Supper or communion. He says, take eat of this bread. This is my body. This cup, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is Jesus doing? He's preparing his disciples, his friends, for his suffering, for his sacrifice, for his death. And he's saying, come, join me. Wow. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was in control. He was heading down, down, down. And yet he chooses to love, right? In the Gospel of John, it says he loved his friends, his disciples, till the end, till the end. And so we move to Friday. Friday, Jesus lays down his life. Jesus lays down his life as a ransom for many. Let's look at... Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. I forgot to note that after the Last Supper, Jesus predicts, that his disciples will all leave him. And he goes into the garden of Gethsemane and he agonizes over what he will face. Remember, Jesus is in control, but let's note that it was not easy. Jesus agonized over this. And so we come 
to some point after midnight, early Friday morning, where Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. What a brutal, brutal punch to the gut from a friend, one he has loved. And note, though, that in this whole entire interchange, all throughout, Jesus is in control. You can tell in his response, right? We know that Peter, right, he strikes and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. We know that Jesus heals that man, right? Jesus is in control. He's not taken off guard here. And Jesus says in verse 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now a legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. And so what Jesus is saying, he said, I could ask the Father right now to send 72,000, over 72,000 angels to fight on my behalf. And yet he doesn't. He chooses not to. Now Jesus, he gives himself up. He lays his life down. He's not caught off guard, right? He's not surprised. He anticipates all of this. And in verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. Now, I know we give Judas a bad rap, right? He betrays Jesus. That is a huge no-no. But let's not forget that all the rest of his friends leave Jesus in his darkest hour. Jesus is all alone. What happens next is a makeshift trial before the priests, right? The ruling party of the temple, a series of interrogations from the governor Pilate. Jesus remains silent most of the time and yet affirms that he indeed is the Son of Man, is indeed the Messiah. Not the political Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting, but the Messiah of the entire universe who will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And when Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so, but he's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of all kings. And then Jesus, he's scourged, he's mocked, He's tortured, and he's crucified. And we focus so much on the physical agony and suffering of Jesus, but we need to focus in on the spiritual suffering. Jesus, the reason why he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane was because he agonized over the separation he would have to endure from the Father, from bearing on the sin of the world upon him. Jesus agonized over the wrath of the Father upon him, poured out on him. This is the suffering we have to focus on because that was our sin that put him on that cross. The Father's wrath poured out on Jesus was the wrath that we deserved. And there was a reason why Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This is Good Friday. And we will remember what Jesus went through this Friday at our Good Friday service. 8 p.m. It will be live streamed. So know that Jesus was in control the whole time. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't taken by surprise. He laid down his life. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave up his spirit. He had reached the end. He was dead. Right? This is the end. He had gone down, down, and he had died. And so we come to Saturday. Saturday, Jesus lays dead in the grave. Jesus lays dead in the grave. Let's turn to Ma uh, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Jesus lays dead in the grave. And it says in Luke chapter 23, verse 56, Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now this was a group of women who had followed Jesus all throughout his ministry. And they wanted to give Jesus the proper treatment for his body. And so they had prepared spices and ointments, but they rested on the Sabbath because it was a day of rest. There's not much written about Saturday for good reason. Jesus lays dead in the grave. And Saturday is significant. Why? Because it proves that Jesus was dead. Jesus did not swoon on the cross. He lay dead in that grave. Think about it. Jesus, the Messiah King, the God-man, the Lamb of God, dead. The creator of the universe who was in the beginning, before all things, dead. That's significant. So this Saturday, Pastor Dan will be leading a time to reflect on the death of Jesus at 9.30. I encourage you to participate. And children, on Saturday, there's no arrow pointing down. We had to reach the low point, okay? It's a flat line, okay? Literally, it's a flat line. Jesus is dead. And so we move to Sunday. Sunday. God the Father raises Jesus from the grave. Note that every other day, Jesus was in control. Jesus, 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 Jesus. He submitted himself to the Father, to the Father's will. He lays down his life. Sunday, it's God the Father who raises him from the grave. God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And so these women who had followed Jesus during his ministry, they want to give Jesus the proper treatment, the body of Jesus, the proper treatment. They rest on the Sabbath. Early Sunday morning, early dawn, they go in and they want to anoint the body of Jesus with spices and ointments. And the body of Jesus is gone. It's gone. Now note the emotion here from the women is one of fear. What happened to Jesus' body? What happened? It's fear. Who did this? And even though the angels, the two, the two angels declare, hey, Jesus told you this was going to happen. Nobody saw this coming. Yeah, we could look back and say, yeah, Jesus says the Son of Man will be delivered. He'll suffer, he'll die, he'll raise on the third day. But that just flew over the heads of the disciples. Nobody was expecting this. Easter Sunday was a surprise. It was a surprise. And I encourage you to join us as we celebrate sunrise service this Sunday, 7 a.m., as we relive the surprise and celebrate the joy of Easter. These women... They go, they scramble, they go to the disciples. Even the disciples don't believe them. Peter runs. Find out later that John runs with them. The tomb is empty. They don't know what happened. Nobody saw this coming. The resurrection was a surprise. But could it be that God raised Jesus from the grave? And if that's so, then that would mean that Jesus was who he said he was. The Messiah King, the God-man, the Son of God. Jesus was who he said he was. And if Jesus is risen, that means that the price has been paid, that our sins are accounted for. That would mean that we are delivered from the wrath of the Father. The resurrection changes everything. Join us this Easter Sunday as we celebrate that. The resurrection changes everything. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This Sunday, Easter Sunday, 1030 live stream. And note, children, and everybody else, from this point on, everything is trending up, right? Jesus will be exalted to the right hand of the Father. He will ascend to the throne. There he pleads on our behalf day after day. And he will return 
to declare to the entire world that he indeed is king, king forever. Amen? And so Easter starts with a J. We have to join Jesus in his descent downward this week before we can celebrate with him on Easter in his resurrection. And this is an invitation to us each year to join Jesus in his suffering, in his betrayal, in his arrest, in his spiritual agony, in his death. It's an invitation to join Jesus down, down, down. Why? So that we can rejoice with him as as God the Father raises him from the grave. And yet some of us are still thinking, why? Why would we do this? Okay, I know we would appreciate Easter a lot more if we understand everything that happened this week, but why revisit all the gory details? Why go through the suffering and the pain and the agony? If Jesus has paid it, why do we have to go there? Can't we just stand in Easter and the resurrection? Why? Why would we go through it again? So that we could remember. So that we could remember. This is when we became a people. We were children of wrath, but now we are children of God. This was when we were delivered from the wrath of the Father. This was when we were freed from our sin. You know, on that Saturday, it was the Sabbath. And just as God the Father rested on the seventh day of creation, thereby instituting the Sabbath rest, Jesus rested from the work of redemption. We all stand here because of that work. It is finished. It is done. We need to remember this is who we are. And so as we take the bread As we take the cup, we are declaring the Lord's suffering, his death, his sacrifice. We are going all the way down to the grave. And we are identifying with his death. We are saying we have died with Christ and we will live with him. You see, the body represents, now the bread represents the body given on our behalf. The blood represents, the cup represents the blood poured out on our behalf. And as we take it, we identify with Christ. And we are declaring that we are not our own. We belong to him. Our lives belong to him. So come join Jesus as he descends down. For in his death, you will find life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we have this opportunity to remember you've given us this week to join Jesus in his descent down, in his suffering, in his death, that we might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And thank you that we have the opportunity now to take communion, to identify with the death, of Jesus, 
to remember not just as a set of facts, but as a reality to be experienced. We eat and we drink because you are with us. We belong to you, Jesus. And so bless now this time as we remember you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.